thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. grateful, aren't we, for Pastor Drew and Pastor Samuel, how the Lord's led these young men to us, and prior to leading them to us, he equipped them. He knew them in their mother's womb, and he gave them in their second birth the spiritual gifts that we are being blessed by. Thank you, Lord, for these young men. I invite you now to turn to the book of 1 Timothy. As was mentioned just a little bit ago, we're going to be looking at the first two verses of 1 Timothy. At first glance, when you read these verses, you're wondering, this is going to be a phenomenon tonight, because pastor is going to not preach very long tonight. Well, think again, okay? This is a great passage of Scripture. It's so rich with valuable truth for us as people who claim to know Jesus are people who are seeking Him. Do you know that Jesus Christ is seeking you if you do not know Him? We sit on this side of the equation before we come to know Jesus and we think we're the ones who are considering Christ. Undoubtedly the Apostle Paul had some of those thoughts roll through his mind. Little did he know that the trip he was making from Jerusalem to Damascus to harass people who were Jewish in ancestry and by practice who had embraced Jesus as their Messiah. That on the road there, he would be struck blind by none other than Jesus himself. And Jesus would say something that dumbfounded him. Adding to the dumbfoundness that was a part of that experience was he became blind. His eyes were open physically, but he could not see anything. And so the Apostle Paul came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't find Jesus. Jesus found him. So often we say, well, I found Christ. That is from our side. But if you know Jesus, He had His eyes on you before you ever began to think about Him as a possible master. And hopefully there'll be great incentive in your heart tonight. If you have yet to come to know Him, that as we look at this passage, you will have a growing thirst to know Him and hopefully come to know Him. And more, one more thing I want to add about that. Did you know that the Bible has one clear definition of what eternal life is? It's in a statement that Jesus prays to the Father just a few short hours before He was going to be crucified on the cross. It's found in the 17th chapter of John, and it says this. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. How do we know God? 
Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. If we've seen Him, we have seen the Father. And so keep that in mind as well. Look at the first two verses of 1 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Have you ever noticed that God is in the habit of making something out of nothing? We need go no farther than the first two verses in the Bible to discover that. He spoke creation into existence. There was nothing, the scripture says. The earth was without form and void, and then God did this miracle. When it came to getting the right man to deliver the children of God out of 400 years of slavery, he picked a man who was a stutterer. And this man used his speech impediment as an argument against God's judgment in sending him there. But you're going to lose every argument you have with God, obviously. We can fight and resist Him with all we are, but in the final analysis, He always wins, and we have to say, I surrender, Lord. I surrender. This man, Moses, is a man who is still revered throughout Christendom and Judaism, for that matter, as the man who was a great prophet. He was among the top three or four prophets in the history of the Bible, but he was made into a man who was the mouthpiece of God. He had some help from his big brother Aaron. Nevertheless, he's the one who's described as a prophet. We see how the Lord takes ordinary men and transforms them into apostles. And an apostle, by definition, was one whom Christ spoke to, whom Christ knew, and whom Christ gave the command to be one of his disciples. There were only 12 to begin with, and the 12 apostles were those whom God had selected in the person of Jesus Christ. We know that one betrayed Jesus, Judas, and there was an effort to replace him, and a certain man by the name of Matthias got the call, but that's the last thing we hear about Matthias. He's a puzzling figure in the scripture, isn't he? His story is told in the first chapter of the book of Acts. But then Paul became the twelfth apostle. And you may remember before Paul was on the scene that Peter and John, who were arguably the two leading apostles in the apostolic band, they were called on the carpet by the what we would call the Senate of Judaism, Sanhedrin is what it was called, comprised of 70 representatives of the nation plus the chief priest. And they came before him and they were told by these ominous 
powerful, spiritual, and political, by the way, leaders, shut up about Jesus Christ. No more. They gave them a good beating, sent them away to be held for a while, while they debated what they should do with them. And then the conversation went like this. One of their numbers stood in that auspicious room and said this, they are common, ordinary men, but they have been with Jesus, which transformed them into what they were born the first time to become in the second birth of Christ when they trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Let's take a few moments to look at, first of all, the Apostle Paul. God made an adversary into an ambassador. Paul's description of himself, and not only himself, this would apply to you and me, how many of you have gone across the street to what we call the crossing, the 520? Anybody besides me gone over there? Yeah, lots of us have, and I hope you will find your way there at some point. Do you know that that is based on 2 Corinthians 520, which says we are ambassadors for Christ? That was Paul's M.O. after he came to know Christ. He was the ambassador royale for Christ, but that is applicable to each of us here this evening. If we know Christ, we have not called just for our own sake. That is important to each of us, and it's important to God too. But we've been called to be tools in His hand to reach people. Some ambassadors have a higher profile than others, and Paul was certainly such a person. He is called Paul of Tarsus in the book of Acts. In Tarsus was a city, if we were to go to the ruins of it today, we'd find ourselves in the nation of Turkey. His father was a Greek citizen, and so was Paul. Paul's Hebrew name was Saul. And you will immediately recognize, if you know your Old Testament, even casually, that the first king of Israel was Saul. The word Paul actually means little in Greek. I did not take time to find out what Saul means, but we know that Saul was a not good king of Israel. But he had that name because he was of the same tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. There were 12 tribes. These tribes were named after the 12 sons of Jacob. And these men became the initial heads of those tribes. Those names represent sons of Jacob. The smallest of all the tribes was the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the last child born to Jacob. His beloved wife, Rachel, gave birth to Joseph and Jacob. And in the birthing of that child, Benjamin, she died. She died from the effects of having given that birth. And Benjamin was the ancestor of Saul of Israel fame as the first king, but also of Paul. And Paul found some pride in that, actually. 
In the book of Philippians, he talks about how he was a hot shot before he came to know Christ. He was a, a rising star in the constellation of people of significance in Israel. And he talked about having been someone who was from Saul's line, Benjamin's more precisely. We saw in Acts 8 how he was at the scene of the stoning of Stephen. And Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit in faith. He's one of the seven prototypical deacons in the New Testament, but he was extraordinary. He was probably the most outstanding of all. He was courageous. He was a man who knew his Bible. He was a man who was unashamed of being a follower of Jesus Christ. He was a man who spoke the truth in love, I might add, but he spoke it in such a way that he undoubtedly anticipated some kind of problem that would arise from him. And the problem, we know, led to his being stoned to death because he was charged as being a blasphemer, because he equated Jesus with Yahweh, Jehovah God. And he was right in doing that. But this flew all over those men because they hated Jesus Christ. And at the end of his life, as he was seeing into heaven, the heavens open, we don't know if anyone else could see it, but someone must have seen it because it's recorded in the scripture. But he saw him, and for the only time in the whole scripture, as far as we know, Jesus was standing rather than sitting at the right hand of God. There's no explanation written as to why Jesus stood, but I think it was because what we do when we see someone of greatness come into our presence, we stand. Imagine Jesus, God in the flesh, equal with God the Father, equal with God the Holy Spirit, stood in honor and welcomed Him undoubtedly into heaven. But who was standing there watching all this unfold and holding the garments of this great man, Stephen. Well, it was Paul. Paul was there. Now, we don't know what Paul's reaction was, but in the ninth chapter, we see it didn't deter him from carrying out his own mission. He was not given the mission. He was a self-appointed terrorist, really, when it came to going up against his own people, the Jews who had embraced Jesus as Messiah. On the road to Damascus, isn't that a fascinating record that we have in the ninth chapter of Acts? What happened? Out of the clear blue, boom, he was knocked off his horse. And when he was knocked off, he saw this bright light, and the bright light was so brilliant that it blinded him. And then he heard the voice. Did you catch what Jesus says to him? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What in the world? Me? Jesus is in heaven. How can he be persecuted? Because Paul was on a tirade, he was on a mission to wipe out the church of Jesus Christ. That was his mission. And we know later 
in the progression of the Christian family that the church is known as the body of Christ. When you mess with the people who are part of the church of Jesus Christ, you're messing with him. And it's not one mess that you can get yourself out of once you know it. And Paul was like that. So he was led by hand all the way to Damascus. He was taken to somebody's home on, or a, maybe an inn on a street called Straight. Ananias, we saw, was told by the Lord to go and deliver a message to him, pray over him. And Ananias didn't want to go, did he? He was afraid. Why? Because the reputation of Saul preceded him for sure. And he went, Ananias, probably with shaky hands and swallowing hard a lot. And he encountered Saul and he found this little guy. We know from extra biblical accounts of the Apostle Paul that he was a, a small man by stature. He was kind of hard to look at for various reasons. Not the kind of person you would pick to lead a revolution. He did. He was trying to lead his own revolution, wasn't he? He was trying to save Judaism. But he ended up in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that place, he became one who led a great revolution. Most of us here tonight, most of us would never have known Jesus were it not for the Apostle Paul. You say, why? Because we're Gentiles. If he had not taken the gospel to people who were not people who were in any way related to the tribes of Israel, then we likely would never have known. That's what we know. The good news is that this man was given the call to be an apostle. He spent time with Jesus. Not too long ago, we did a study of the book of Galatians and in the first chapter, and that book talks about how this man was a man who was taught by Jesus. He was commissioned by Jesus as well. He was an ambassador for Christ. What does this have to do with us? It has a lot to do with us because we too are ambassadors for Christ. And this is not very flattering for you or for me, but it's true of all of us in the room. The Bible says before we came to know Jesus Christ, we were dead in our spirit. The Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sin. There was no way that you and I could ever be made right with God on the amount of good things we could do. The Apostle Paul was at the top of the ladder when it came to people who were striving to make points with God by doing good things for God. Yet he was a man who was badly mistaken because he was blinded spiritually. I'm not talking about what happened to him on the road to Damascus. I'm talking about what was true of him spiritually. And it's true of all of us. The Bible says that. This is why it's so hard for people 
sometimes who are brilliant. We have many brilliant people who come to know Jesus, thank the Lord. I could spend the rest of the hour just naming names that I know through history, great people who came to the point where they recognized that they could not figure it out by themselves. They could not do enough good things. They could not use their intellects as great as their intelligence might have been to figure it out and work their way into heaven. Just did not work. They were all dead in their trespasses and sin. With that having been said, I'm going to read a, a little bit from the book of Matthew, chapter 10. Listen. The scripture says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Jesus is teaching this to the apostles, which would have included Peter and John among those who were taught. And he was saying to them, it's going to happen to you. You're going to be arrested. And you're going to have to deal with it. Verse 19 says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. That happened to these men, didn't it? And it's happened every generation since then. Men and women who know Christ and have trusted Christ, such people are people whom God has given what they need to say in the moment. Just like they, Peter and John were given these things. An Kim is a person who was a native of Korea prior to World War II. The Japanese and the Koreans had a long-standing animosity toward each other and Japan was the more powerful nation and really lorded it over them. An Kim became a Christian. Her background was either Buddhist or Hinduism. I think it was Buddhism. And she came to Christ and in her prayer time leading up to the outbreak of World War II, the Japanese had already begun to invade and take over parts of China and Korea. The Lord spoke to her and said to her, An, I want you to go to what would be the equivalent of the Congress of Japan, and I want you to tell them exactly what I'm going to tell you to say. She wrote down everything. She didn't hear the Lord speaking out loud. She wrote down everything. And she bought a one-way ticket. Why didn't she buy a one-way ticket? Well, she may have been poor, and she probably was, but she knew she wasn't coming home. She knew that she would be faced with probably a death sentence, at least life imprisonment. So she did as she was told. She got there. She sat in the balcony, just in your mind's eye, see the scene, sat in the balcony, listening to the business that was being conducted on the floor of the Japanese Congress, we would call it. And when there was a break in the back and forth, she stood up, little woman, not much over five feet tall. She came to the edge of the balcony and she wrote, read this, and I'm just gonna read 
one line. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to try to remember it. She said, leaders of Japan, if you do not repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ, you will be condemned. And then she took that piece and dropped it over and let it go to the floor. People were stunned. People around her were shocked at the audacity. And the people who were the leaders, they were, even the people who were the sergeant of arms, they were, and this little lady made her way all the way down to the floor and outside before she was overtaken. She had a quick trial. She was placed in a prison. And within a week after she was placed there, she was placed into a cell with about 30 other women. And the thing was only about 10 by 20. That's a small area for 20 people to be in. They brought her in and their food was just gross that they fed them. She came in and they had this luscious, beautiful table of food. It just smells so good. This is her own account. And they said, On Kim, if you will renounce your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be set free. And she says, how could I deny my Savior who has done so much for me? And she politely excused herself, was taken back. This scene recurred several times until finally there was one last ditch effort that was made by her captors. And the effort went like this. Same thing that I've already said, but the man who is the head interrogator said to her, "On, you don't have to do this in front of anyone. If you will just promise us. They had a lot of admiration for this little woman. She was spunky. If you'll just promise us you'll go, and there were shrines all over the place in the forest and everything, lots of gods. If you will go and say you're not going to give allegiance to, to God and Jesus Christ and pay homage with some incense, then we will set you free. And she said, I can't do that. She went back. She didn't ever hear from the interrogators again. Time passed. She was so malnourished, she lost her vision. She could not see. Her hair was coming out. And one evening, two guards whom she had led to Christ. These are males, okay? They came to her and said to her, "On, we are going to help you escape tonight. And this is what she said. She said, look at me. I can't see. I'm so weak and emaciated. I can hardly get up and go. And I'll just stay here. That same night, she was awakened by fellow inmates and she heard the strains of all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let every angel fall. And she said, thought to herself, I'm in heaven. The songs of the angels are being heard. I'm in heaven. But those two guards came back to her and said, On, the Americans have conquered Japan. Japan has said, we are done and the gates are open she was set free 
the good news, the rest of the story is that An Kim regained her sight, she grew hair again, and she wrote a book. If you want to look it up, I'm sure you can find it online and get it. Powerful story, isn't it? The Lord gave her what to say. Was that an easy time for her? Absolutely not. It was a horrifying time for her. But she was trusting in the Lord, correct? And the Lord saw her through. So God did something with the Apostle Paul. He wants to do things in our lives, maybe not as dramatic as in on Kim or in the Apostle Paul, but he wants to do that transformative work in our lives. If we trust in him, he will. Quickly, I want to talk about the other figure in this passage, Timothy. God made a leader out of a timid young man. Timothy the timid. It's one way we can remember what his situation was. He learned the gospel through his mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois. His father is not mentioned. He's probably a Gentile. Maybe had abandoned his wife and his child, Timothy. But nevertheless, Timothy was a gentle soul, and he was kind of a scaredy cat, probably. And Paul, in the second letter, says to him, he says, Fan into the flame that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given you a spirit of fear, Timothy, but of power and love and self-control. And so Paul had spoken to Timothy. Timothy, he occupied the highest place in the heart of Paul except Jesus Christ. This is what he says about Timothy. I wish we had time to delve more deeply into his life. We don't. Time will not permit. This is what he said about Timothy. In the book of Philippians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, he says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in you and all others by implication. I have no one else like him. And then he describes what that meant because he says, because he makes Jesus Christ's interest his own, which would tell us what is primary in Jesus Christ. What is Jesus most interested in? He's interested in people. And when we know Jesus Christ, you know what? He comes to dwell in us. And if he's in us, he's going to move us to care about people and not be casual in that. To really have a heart for those people. That was Timothy. Timothy was this great young man. And he was given the assignment. It was a daunting task he was given by the Apostle Paul. He's not a pastor. Lots of times people say that 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus are pastorals. Nonsense. There's no reference to their being pastors. It's a filial filial in the sense that what Paul says in this passage of Scripture, how does he describe Timothy? As his child, right? His true child. He was not his physical offspring, but he was his dearest spiritual offspring. He was the most Christ-like of all those people that Paul discipled, no telling how many people he discipled. 
but he was that kind of man. Now, before I go any further, if we get past 1 Timothy, we may go on to 2 Timothy and finish the saga of Timothy and his ministry. But what we know in that particular piece of literature in the second chapter, this is what we hear Paul write to Timothy. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard, Timothy, from me and the presence of many people entrust to other people so they in turn can pass it on. And so this is the beauty of knowing Christ. Are you grateful that you know Jesus? If you don't have gratitude, you probably don't know him <laughs> because he's awesome. But if you know him, you have gratitude. And you want other people to know him. I remember as a boy, I came to Christ as a boy. And I remember what I wanted to do. It was on a Sunday that I came to know Jesus. And I went to school, and the first person I wanted to talk to because I loved her was Miss Tedder. She was my second grade teacher. And she just patted me on the head. And I don't know what she was thinking. She said, I got a, I got a religious fanatic on my hat, hands, and he's only eight years old, you know. But nevertheless, she was kind. But this is something that when you know it, you don't want to keep it to yourself. You want to share it. And you don't even know how to share it. But that doesn't matter because Christ is in you and he moves you to be what he wants you to be. Jesus himself said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that'd be home, Judea, that'd be in the county, and Samaria, that would be somewhere across the tracks that you don't want to go and then the uttermost part of the world. That's what happened to Paul. That's what happened to Timothy. And we who know Jesus, we have been given the privilege, the incredible privilege of not only knowing him, but of making him known. Not to be selfish and be afraid of what it might cost us in terms of embarrassment or reducing our reputation we just share the Lord and let the Holy Spirit do what He does. Let's look quickly at the ingredients of God's work when He makes somebody who's dead come alive. And it's beautiful. Let's read the, both verses again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope... Paul was commanded not only by God the Father but Jesus who was his hope and Timothy's hope and our hope you need hope hope is to be found in Jesus Christ to Timothy my true child in the faith the faith of Christ the, the truth of the scripture grace mercy and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I could talk a whole hour on that. I'm about eight minutes to finish what I'm going to share. Here, here's the word grace. I have a book in my possession. It's entitled Grace is Not a Blue-Eyed Blonde. I thought it was a rather clever way to get people's attention to read about what grace is. Grace is 
God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is undeserved, and this is really important, listen, unmerited favor. You can't get it. It's not payable. You don't have the money to pay for it. But the good news for us is Christ did it for us. Grace is what is necessary for you to come to know Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're, being, you're here tonight, you don't know Christ. God's grace is working in your heart, knocking at your door. God brought you here. I'm just going to be strong. They step in trust and faith. He brought you here tonight, all of us, really. And grace is critically important. No grace, no salvation. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, he says that we have been saved not by works, but by faith through what? Grace. It's the undeserved, unmerited favor of God. Then he goes on to say, mercy. What's mercy? Grace is getting what we do not deserve. We don't deserve forgiveness because we're sinners. You know how many sins it takes to make a sinner out of you or me? One sin. Why? Because God's standard for admission into heaven is perfect perfection. Anybody here say you're perfect in your thinking, in your behavior? Absolutely not. Grace, mercy, is not getting what we deserve. Not getting. We deserve the justice of God. The justice of God ends up being estranged from God forever in everlasting destruction, what the Bible calls hell. That's not a pretty thing to even think about. But God has given us grace, something we didn't deserve. He's giving us mercy, something we did deserve, and then peace. Notice the order. Grace, mercy, and then peace. And the peace is based on the concept of the Old Testament word shalom, which doesn't simply mean the, the absence of conflict. Look, before you come to know Christ, you sense that there's more inside. And you try to improve yourself. Somebody in this room has tried, I'll, I'll improve, I'll go to church more often, I'll give more money to the church and all that kind of stuff. I'll get baptized. I'll do all those things. But that doesn't cut it. It's not about what you can do. Your works are dead is what the Bible says. We are saved by works, actually. And I sound like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth simultaneously. But listen this. It was the work of Jesus Christ that saved you. He lived a perfect life. He died for your sin. He knew you before you were ever known by anyone else. He thought of you and me when he died on the cross. And the Bible says God the Father made Christ the Son to be sin on Mike Wood's behalf. And put your name in there in order that we might become right with God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God the Father was the one 
who crucified Jesus. The Jews get the bum rap sometimes, and the Romans, well, they were, they were willing to cooperate with the devil on that, but it was not even the devil who did it. It was God the Father who did it. Can you imagine God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This gospel is incredible. Nobody could make it up. It is phenomenal, and it's true. Peace from God, the Father, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Peace within. Do you, are you able to say, I really have peace in my heart? Not all the time, but I really have peace in my heart. I mean, my life is... I'm not using me as an example, but I'm saying to you, do you have that kind of peace? The Bible says, if only you'd paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. What is the thing that we have to obey the Lord in doing? Very simple. Someone asked one of the apostles, what must we do to be saved? It was a Philippian jailer, a man who was not of Jewish descent, a Gentile, and he thought his life was about to be taken because he'd failed in his duty to properly protect Paul, this very valuable piece of merchandise as one of his inmates. And then Paul says, believe into the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe into. The word is put your trust in Christ alone and ask him to forgive you of your sin, come to live in your life, and in that instant, you will be what is called a new man or a new woman in Christ. Would you bow your head? I would imagine there's one or more people here this evening who have heard some new things and it, it sounds like it's right what you've heard. That you yourself know you want peace in your life. And you are willing to believe what the Bible says when it says that we can't earn it this peace it took Jesus to earn it for us and he wants to give it to you tonight your responsibility is just to surrender to the Lord Jesus just say Lord I do want you to be my king my governor I want to follow you all the rest of my days I'm scared Lord I don't know what that means, but I sense you're speaking. Please come in. In your name I ask this. Amen.